0: Before we get into the material on the sheet, I want to cover something that is foundational. Like the speaker who said, before I speak, I'd like to say something important. So what what I'm about to say is very important before we get into the material at hand. We have to determine what our source of authority is going to be in life. There are at least four different options that, that people have chosen over the years. The primary source of authority, what should be our source of authority, is Scripture, Is revelation, Uh, we understand who God is and who we are as he's revealed himself and talked about us in scripture. Revelation should be primary. There are many who have decided that reason is going to be their ultimate source of authority. And where there's something in the Bible that they don't understand or they disagree with, they let reason set in judgment on revelation. And that's going to be the case for some of these isms that we're going to look at. People who, in essence, have decided they are smarter than God, and therefore their reason is going to supersede revelation. Uh, A third source of authority in people's lives is tradition. Some people look simply to the past, what other people have taught, and they base their viewpoints off of tradition. Now, tradition can be helpful. Church history can be very informative. But it's not determinative in terms of our understanding of Scripture. A fourth basis, and one that's very prevalent today, is experience. Some people say, it's it's all about my experience. And they base their theology off of their experience. Experience certainly plays into our understanding of who God is and His ways in our world. But we must always interpret our experience through the Bible and not the Bible through our experience. So, ultimate source of authority must come back to Revelation must come back to Scripture. That, that sort of presupposes what we're going to be talking about. We don't have time to really uh, unpack that in, in greater depth. But if we abandon Scripture as our ultimate source of authority, then we can go off in any one of a number, uh, number of different directions, including some that we're going to talk about today. Okay, if you look at your handout, uh, what we're going to cover today, my task in the next hour or so, and I want to leave a little bit of time at the end for uh, questions is understanding the isms. You you hear these different terms thrown about, universalism, pluralism, inclusivism, exclusivism, uh, so many isms, so little time. How how are we to understand these things? Well, to begin with, uh, in order to set the context, we'd like to talk about the traditional Christian teaching, that of exclusivism, or we must have faith in Christ in order to be saved. This is really the position that virtually every Christian held to until around 1800. It was around 1800 that because of higher criticism of the Bible, attacks on Scripture, that some of these other viewpoints came to become more prominent. But up until about 1800, this was the position that virtually everyone held. It's the position that we affirm today as I've set forth here in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Two two brief articles uh, explaining exclusivism. First, from the article on salvation, we read Salvation involves the redemption of the whole man and is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer. In its broadest sense, salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And then notice this last statement. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. That is the position that was basically unchallenged for 1,800 years of of Christian history. In the last 200 years, there have been a lot of challenges to that, that position known as exclusivism. You must have explicit faith in Christ in order to be saved. We're going to see that universalism, pluralism, and inclusivism do not affirm that last statement. They believe you can be saved apart from explicit faith in Christ. And then the Roman numeral 10, the last things in the Baptist faith and message, we read there, God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. I I like the humility that is expressed in that statement, God in his own time and in his own way. Uh, I do not know how all things are going to come to an end. I, I have not yet figured out eschatology. Or the book of Revelation, there are some TV preachers who have figured it out, but I haven't. I tell people I am not on the planning committee, I'm on the welcoming committee. And I like the humility that's expressed there. A lot of disagreement about eschatology. God, in His own time and in His own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. But there are some things about that we do know, and they're spelled out here. According to His promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. Next statement. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. The Bible makes clear there is a heaven, there is a hell. Again, why is it that we affirm these things? Not because we sat down and came up with them, but because this is what God has revealed to us in His Word. So let me give you kind of a road map of of where we're headed here in in the next uh, 40 minutes or so and allow a little time for questions. The first position we're going to look at is the position of universalism, which teaches that all will be saved. There's some people who argue that every single person who's ever lived, in fact, there are some who take it so far as to say that even Satan and the fallen demons are going to one day be forgiven and be restored. The bottomless pit really isn't bottomless after all. Even Satan one day is going to repent. Universalism says all will be saved. Pluralism says there are many paths to God. It doesn't necessarily say as universalism does that all will find God. It just says there are many paths. According to pluralism, Jesus may be a way to God, but He's certainly not the only way. There are many paths to God. So while most universalists are pluralists, not all pluralists are universalists. You can be a pluralist, say there are many paths to God, but yet believe not everyone finds him. Third position is inclusivism. All who are saved are saved by Christ. We say, well, that sounds right, and that is right in what it affirms. But what the position of inclusivism denies is the last part of this phrase in exclusivism. All who are saved are saved through explicit faith in Christ. Position of inclusivism says you can be saved by Christ even though you've never heard of him, even though you've rejected him, even though you're an adherent to another religion. And I'll explain the arguments for that and then critique them in just a moment. So that's kind of a roadmap map of where we're headed. Let's begin with universalism. All will be saved. Or, as I have there on the handout, all are doomed to be saved. Ultimately, in universalism, whether you want to or not, you're going to be saved. You are going to be in heaven with everyone else. The definition of universalism I give you there, though hell may exist, some universalists believe that hell does exist, but it eventually empties. Others believe that there is no such thing as hell. Everyone, when they die, just automatically goes to heaven. So the definition of universalism, though hell may exist, it will eventually empty as God's will to save all people individually will finally triumph. All are doomed to be saved. Universalism, every single person who's ever lived will end up in heaven. Now, before I talk about the arguments that universalists make, Let let me talk a little bit about the appeal of universalism. I I see three elements that uh, have influenced people in this direction, that have caused some people to go in a universalistic direction in their theology. The first appeal is to meet the pressures of pluralism. We live in a very pluralistic culture where we're having a a narrow-minded view that says Jesus is the only way to be saved. That that seems so archaic, so narrow-minded in the culture in which we live. So some, in order to meet the pressures of pluralism, have said, okay, Christianity used to think it's the only way. We no longer believe that. There are many ways to God. Or as Leighton Ford uh, writes, got one, thank you. As Leighton Ford writes in in this article in Worldwide Challenge. He asked this question in the title of his article. Do you mean to tell me that in this modern, humanistic, pluralistic, tolerant society you still believe in hell? See, that's the kind of question that people are asking today. They may not ask it directly in in those words, but basically they're saying, we understand that in the Middle Ages people believed in hell. I mean, Dante's Inferno and other things, but good grief, this is 2009. We're enlightened now. We no longer believe in all that medieval kind of stuff. And so pluralism has caused some people to abandon uh, a belief in hell. Uh, A second appeal is to appease our human feelings about persons being lost. Many people have moved towards a more universalistic position because they have had a loved one or a friend or a family member who has died never having confessed faith in Christ. And if you're in that situation, it's, it's very tempting to begin to think, well, may, maybe God has a plan B. May, maybe there's another way. May, maybe in the end everyone is going to be saved. The pastor that I grew up under actually had adopted universalism for this very reason. I grew up in a very liberal church. I, I didn't know it was liberal. That's where we went. It wasn't until I went to college that I heard the gospel and came to faith in Christ. I, I came back to talk to my pastor. I was trying not to seem critical, but I was going to suggest that he be a little more explicit in sharing the gospel, communicate a little more clearly how people could be saved. I I just assumed that he believed all this and had been teaching it, and maybe I'd been a little bit dull of hearing as a high school student, but, but he needed to be more specific. So I began to have this conversation. Have you ever had a conversation where you're both speaking English, but you might as well be speaking a different language? We're not communicating. He says, I don't understand what you're saying. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to tell him bluntly, directly. Reverend Gilbert, the people in this church are going to hell. You're not telling them how not to. All the years I've grown up here, you never told me how not to. I had to go to college to learn that. You need to specifically tell people how to be saved by Christ. He looked at me and he said, I I see what you're saying now. He said, "Uh, Tim, hell's not real. There's no such thing as a, as a literal hell. That, that's something that was added in uh, later on by, by other people. Jesus never talked about hell. Paul, Paul never talked about hell. Everyone's going to heaven. Now understand, I'm, I'm a relatively new Christian. I've been a Christian just a few months. Now, that didn't sound right to me, but, I mean, this is my pastor. I went home. I couldn't sleep that night. I got up and began skimming through the New Testament. I did not know there was such a thing as a concordance. I could have done this, especially with a computer cordance in a few minutes. You know it's possible if you stay up all night to skim through the entire New Testament. I'm skimming through looking for judgment in hell. I found all these verses. I wrote them down on a sheet of paper. Called my pastor the next morning. Said, uh, can I talk to you? Sure. Came in. I said, how can you say that this is figurative? Jesus is talking here about a real place. Paul's talking about a real place. Oh, well, Jesus didn't really say that. Paul didn't really write that. It finally dawned on me, and I, I just said, are you telling me you don't believe the Bible? He said, oh, well, I, I believe parts of it. But he said, you have to pick and choose which parts. Now, see, this, this is a question of his reason setting in judgment on Revelation. Who determines what parts he picks and keeps? His own mind, his own fallen mind. I said, have you always believed this? He said, no. He said, uh, I, I used to believe the Bible, but my first year in seminary, my dad died. He said, my dad was the nicest man you'd ever want to meet. Kind, compassionate, give somebody the shirt off his back. But my dad was not a religious person, never, ever went to church. And he said, the thought of my dad being in hell when he was such a good person, he said, I just couldn't reconcile that. So a couple of my professors, he went to a very liberal seminary, said so a couple of my professors helped me understand how to reconcile it. Well, how do you reconcile it? Well, you just say everyone's going to be safe. So there are some who have moved in a universalistic direction uh, because of that. The next reason is to overcome the struggles of the missionary task. If you've been in the mission field, you see the challenges there. It can be easy to be almost overcome with a sense of, of hopelessness. So look at all these people month of January, I spent the first two weeks in Thailand, the last eight days in Turkey. Thailand, predominantly Buddhist. Uh, Turkey, 99% Muslim. You see these teeming masses of people, many of whom have never heard the gospel. And you can have one of two responses to that. You, You can have what I believe is the biblical response, which is, Lord, help me to do all that I can to not only personally communicate the gospel, but to help raise up others and and to send as many as I can so these people can hear the gospel and be saved. Or second, to say, maybe we've misunderstood what the Bible says. Maybe these people are all going to be saved in the end anyway. Maybe we don't really need to worry about them. And tragically, that's what a lot of Christian groups have said. A lot of liberal denominations have simply said, uh, we, we just realized that everyone's going to be saved in the end, so we're just going to pull our missionaries home. We're just kind of intruding into these people's way of life anyway. Well, if what the Bible says is true, and I believe it is, people need to hear and respond to the gospel in order to be saved. What are the arguments for universalism? I, I list first biblical arguments. It may surprise you that some who, not all, but some who argue for universalism actually cite verses of Scripture. Say so it may surprise you because it's very difficult to argue for very long for universalism with a Bible in your hand uh, because there's so many verses that indicate that there are going to be those who are lost. But here are three lines of argument that universalists try and make from the Bible. First of all, they point to the saving desire of God. Verses such as 1 Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter 3.9. 1 Timothy 2.4, which talks about how we ought to pray for, for all people because God desires that all be saved. 2 Peter 3.9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. A universalist taking those two verses to say, look, it is God's desire that all be saved. God's desires are going to be fulfilled, therefore everyone's going to be saved. Simply taking those two verses... Related argument they make from John twelve thirty two, what I call the saving provision of God. In John twelve thirty two, Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me, all persons to me. Universalists argue Jesus was lifted up on the cross. The word all means all. Jesus said he'd draw all people to him. Therefore, at the end of the day, everyone's going to be saved. Third argument, the saving promise of God. In Ephesians 1:10, we read about how all things are summed up in Christ. And universalists argue, how can it be said that all things are summed up in Christ if there are still people in hell in rebellion against Him? I say that verse doesn't make sense, and the only way that verse can make sense is if everyone is now following Him in heaven. I'm going to critique the, these arguments in just a moment. But I want to first give three philosophical or theological arguments because most universalists do not try and argue for universalism with the Bible in their hand. That's kind of a losing proposition. You want want to quote the Bible. It's it's kind of hard because so much of Scripture speaks against this. The philosophical or theological arguments are, are three, and I've listed them there. The first is the argument from divine love. Now listen carefully to this. This is a serious argument made... By a theologian. He says, or he asks the question, there are two differing ways of looking at salvation. One is to say only Christian believers are saved, the other is to say that everybody is saved. Now, here's this question Which of those sounds more loving? Let me ask you, which of those sounds more loving? That only Christian believers are saved or everybody's saved? Which sounds more loving? Everybody it's not a trick question sounds more loving right everyone's safe he says well that proves universalism because what does the bible say god is love and because god is love he's going to always do the more loving thing that means everyone's going to be saved that, that's an actual argument made in print by a universalist of course that assumes many things makes many leaps of logic but that's the argument that's made, not, not trying to quote, uh, quote Scripture, simply arguing because God is love, in the end, everyone's going to be saved. Tied with that is point B, divine sovereignty. The argument here is, is that God is sovereign, He can do what He wants, because God's already expressed that He wants everyone to be saved. That means God is going to save everyone. Now, here's an important theological question for us to answer. Now, don't answer immediately. I want you to think for a second before you answer. Can God do anything? Or let me ask it another way Is there anything God cannot do? Now, think for a second before you answer. According to the Bible, is there anything God cannot do? Okay, I see some heads nodding yes. What can God not do? He's God, He's sovereign. What can He not do? He cannot sin. What else? He cannot lie. Numbers twenty three seventeen. God is not a man that He should lie nor a son of man that He should repent. What else can He not do? He cannot die. He cannot deny Himself, Scripture says. So when we start talking about God's sovereignty, God can do anything. No, God cannot do something that violates His character. He cannot do something He's already told us He will not do because that would mean he lied. So when universalists say, well, God's sovereign, he can save everyone. No, he cannot save everyone if he's already told us he will not save everyone. God cannot go back on his word. God cannot lie. That's the argument from divine sovereignty. Third, the witness of the human heart. I've only found this in one universalist writing, but but he tries to make a compelling argument. And I think in our sort of postmodern context. This will resonate with some people. He asked the question, ask any sincere Christian, and I'm going to assume for the sake of argument that all of us here in this room are sincere Christians, okay? We're all genuine, heartfelt believers. Ask any sincere Christian, what does he or she think about? What, What emotion do sincere Christians have when they think about millions of people going to hell. Let me ask you, you're a room full of sincere, devout Christians. What emotion do you have when you think about millions of people going into a Christless eternity? What emotion does that bring to your mind? Anger? Sorrow? Grief? Hopelessness? Charles Duthie, who's the one who argues this, says, where does that emotion come from? Where does that emotion of sorrow come from? He says, well, if you're a sincere, devout Christian, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. That emotion comes from the Spirit because that's the emotion that God has. And then the argument just goes right back. God sorrows when anyone perishes and because God is sovereign and he can do all things, he will keep everyone from perishing. So it ends up being something of a circular argument. In the end, everyone is going to be saved because God wills it. Turn over to the back of the sheet. Let me give a brief critique of universalism, then we'll move on to the other isms. In terms of a critique of universalism, first When we think about a biblical critique, the the first thing we have to note is that all of those verses that universalists argue, and they typically only cite those four, can be interpreted in a non-universalistic manner. For example, when Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all persons to me. If Jesus said, if I die on the cross, everybody in the world is going to be saved, that would be pretty clear. Everyone in the world is going to be saved. What does it mean? I will draw all persons to me. He doesn't say everyone's going to be saved. In other words, there are different possible interpretations of each of those verses. But point B is what makes it conclusive. All of the biblical writers quoted in favor of universalism indicate that some will be lost. Therefore, whatever these verses do mean, they cannot mean that ultimately all will be saved. I don't know if you've ever had a class in hermeneutics or done a study on biblical interpretation, but one of the most foundational principles is you always let clear Scripture interpret that which is less clear. If there's a verse that could mean different things, you say, how do I really know what this means? Well, you look at all of Scripture. You let Scripture interpret Scripture. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. Scripture. So is it possible that John twelve thirty two, when Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw them into me, if that's the only verse we have, could that possibly teach universalism? Sure, that might be what that verse means. But when we see throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus talking about the righteous go into eternal life, the wicked into everlasting punishment, it's very clear that is not what that verse is teaching as we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Second, in terms of theological critique, let me give you seven different theological critiques to this position of universalism. I'm spending a little more time on this one than on the others because this is the most destructive of these viewpoints. If universalism is true, why would I cross the ocean to tell anyone the gospel? Why would I even cross the street? if in the end everyone's going to be saved anyway, why why even lift a finger? There's tremendous implications for this viewpoint. So first of all, I note point A in the theological critique, universalism judges God and his actions by men's standards. The, The test of truth no longer becomes God has spoken, it becomes man has reasoned, like my former pastor, reasoning that there's no way his father's deserving of hell because he was such a good man. Therefore, the Bible must be wrong. I'm going to let my mind, my reason set in judgment of revelation. I'm going to determine what God should be like if I'm truly going to follow him. We hear this expressed oftentimes in our day by this phrase. How can a loving God send anyone to hell? In other words, presuming if God is really God and if he really is loving, then everyone has to be saved. No one is deserving of hell. That is placing our own understanding of who we think God has to be. We're creating God in our image and saying, unless God is like this, He's not worthy to be followed. A second theological critique, and this is a very important one, is the whole issue of, is love God's essential attributes? Universalists automatically assume that the supreme attribute of God is love. Now, what they don't do and what they need to do if they want to be taken seriously by theologians is first ask and answer the question, is it possible to take one of God's attributes and make that his supreme attribute? You may not have ever had a class in theology, but if you do and if you study the attributes of God, you'll determine and you'll discover some theologians believe it's possible to take one attribute, make that the overarching attribute of God. Others say no They all flow together. They all come together. You can't make one sort of stand above the others. That's a healthy debate that you can have among theologians. Universalists never even make that argument. They just assume. But for the sake of argument, let's assume that it is possible to take one attribute and say, that is God's supreme overarching attribute. As you read the Bible... Would you say that that one overarching attribute would be love, or might you choose something else? What do you think the one overarching attribute might be? I would say holiness. As you see the presentation of God, whenever someone encounters the presence of God, what is it about God that strikes them? What do the seraphim do in Isaiah chapter 6 in response to being there in the presence of God? What do they cry out? Holy, holy, holy. What happens whenever someone encounters the presence of God, they fall on their face in fear. See, if the universalist argument were true, the seraphim ought to be crying out, love, 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 around the throne. But no, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. Now, it is true that God is love. The Bible tells us that specifically. We see that demonstrated. But if I had to argue for one attribute being supreme, it would be to view God's love through his holiness, not to view his holiness through his love. But for the sake of argument, let's assume possible to make one supreme, and let's assume the universalists are right and that love is that attribute. I don't think the universalists even begin to do justice to a biblical view of God's love. Here's the best way I know how to illustrate it. It is the difference between a father's love and a grandfather's love. Some of you have not yet experienced this, but if you have children one day, you will. You will see your parents change. My parents certainly did. We have four children. We would go back to our parents' farm. I remember one time we we were back there. My wife and I got up early in the morning, walk around the farm, came back in, and here are our four children at the breakfast table eating ice cream. So what is going on here? Chrissy, our oldest, said, Dad, Grandpa said we could have whatever we wanted for breakfast. And they're there eating ice cream, dripping off their chin. I walk over to my dad and I say, Who are you? you? You resemble the man who raised me. But you're obviously not him. The man who raised me wouldn't even let me have ice cream for dessert. Now these kids are getting it for breakfast. Who are you? He just laughs. My mom's even worse. There is a paddle that hangs in our kitchen. Hangs on a little peg there. It's an oak paddle. Three quarters inch thick oak. It was my dad's fraternity paddle. It's a paddle about this long, nice carved out handle. And on the back of it, it is signed by all of my dad's fraternity brothers. Then laminated over. I grew up hating those men. Because they would inflict pain upon my backside on a regular basis. When I would get in trouble, I'd have to go into the kitchen, bend over, grab my ankles. My mom believed in spare the rod, spoil the child, so she did not spare the rod. I would get that paddle and she would whack me and bring discipline on a fairly regular basis. That same paddle hangs on that same hook in our kitchen, but it's not exactly the same paddle. It looks different now there is a huge heart-shaped pillow glued to the paddle. And embroidered on the pillow, it says grandma's paddle. My son was acting up some years ago. My mom calls him in. Jonathan, come in here. Got to discipline you. Had to do this to your dad all the time. Bend over. She grabs this paddle with this padded pillow, gives him a couple little taps, says, now quit acting up or you'll be right back in here. Had to do this to your dad all the time. I come into her, who are you? (laughs) I do not know who you are. You're in the same house I grew up in. You're holding the same paddle, but what's with this pillow? And what's with this little just wrist tap? The woman I remember got a full backswing before she swang that paddle. And my mom would just laugh. See, when universalists talk about God's love, it's not really a father's love. A father's love involves discipline. A grandfather's love is just do whatever you want. You want ice cream for breakfast? Fine. You want to act up? Fine. No problem at all. And when I'm a grandfather, I'm going to do the exact same thing. But that's the distinction. That's the difference. I'm not sure that love is God's essential attribute, but even if it is, it is a father's love, not a grandfather's love. It's not simply sentimentality, as the universalists would have us believe. Third, it ignores the biblical stress on the decisiveness of this life's decision. If the gospel of universalism is true, then if you're going to be honest in sharing the gospel with someone, or for example, let's take Paul's response to the Philippian jailer. Remember in Acts 16, Philippian jailer says, What must I do to be saved? And Paul says, Well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your household. If Paul really believed in the gospel of universalism, here's how he would have had to answer what must I do to be saved? Well, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I need to let you know, if you don't believe now, you're going to have an opportunity in the afterlife to believe. But you may have to spend some time suffering in hell first before you, you make that decision. Why not just take care of it now? You're going to believe eventually. Just just take care of it now. Why put it off till the future? See, ultimately, universalism says it doesn't matter how you live in this life, it doesn't matter what decisions you make, whether or not you believe in God, trust Christ, at the end of the day, everyone's going to be given another chance and everyone one day is going to be saved. Fourth, it undercuts the nerve of real moral choices in this life. How we live here has absolutely no bearing to what our eternity is going to be, no no sense of punishment or reward. At, At the end of the day, we're all going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The best illustration of this and and refuting this that I've ever seen was uh, Cliff Koneckley. Cliff Koneckley is an evangelist with InterVarsity. He goes to college campuses and will engage students in dialogue and conversation. He was at Brown University engaging the students there. And the way he usually sets this up, he says, okay, here are the ground rules. I have the microphone for the next 15 or 20 minutes. Do not heckle me. Do not interrupt me. Do not attack me. I, I'm going to share what I believe the Bible teaches about how you enter into a right relationship with God. Notice I have a cordless microphone here. After I speak for 15 or 20 minutes for the next three hours, you're going to have an opportunity to disagree with me. You're going to have an opportunity to ask me questions. You're going to have an opportunity to tell me what you think. So give me this first 15, 20 minutes, and the rest of the three hours are yours. Those are the ground rules. So he's at Brown University... Takes 20 minutes and explains the gospel, explains the claims of Christ. You must believe in Jesus to be saved. After he finishes, any questions, comments? Girl raises her hand, takes a cordless mic over to him, says, You have a question? She says, No, I have a comment. She says, I'm Jewish and I am very offended by what you said. You say that you have to believe in Jesus to be saved. I believe that everyone is saved. Everyone's going to be in heaven. Cuff takes the microphone back from her and says, I want to make sure I'm accurately presenting your view. I don't want to put words in your mouth. You're saying you're Jewish and you think everyone's going to be saved. Everyone's going to be in heaven. She said, yes, that's what I believe. He reaches out his hand and says, well, congratulations. You get to spend all eternity with Adolf Hitler. She says, Adolf Hitler will not be in heaven. He said, didn't you just tell me that everyone was going to be in heaven? He turns to the rest of the student, didn't she just say? And they're like, yeah, yes. She said, well, Adolf Hitler's not going to be in heaven. So Cliff Connect says, now, let me make sure I have this right. I we not put words in your mouth. You think some people go to heaven and some people go to hell? She said, yes. He said, that's what I believe. That's what the Bible teaches. Now we just have to figure out who goes to heaven and why and who goes to hell and why. See, universalism is a little tough to hold to. When you start saying everyone is going to be saved, some say even the devil himself, that means that Adolf Hitler will be right there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And a lot of people don't want to affirm that. That's a way to turn a universalist into a pluralist in a hurry. But that's the teaching of universalism. It doesn't matter what you do in this life. None of that matters because... Later on, you're going to be given an opportunity to repent. Point E, it trivializes sin and man's predicament. It, it really says sin isn't that big of a deal, certainly not deserving of eternal punishment. I, I mentioned earlier a question that we'll often hear today, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? If we understand the Bible, we would rephrase that question. The, the question that we ought to be asking is how can a holy God allow anyone into heaven? Not not how can a a loving God send anyone to hell, but how can a holy God allow anyone into heaven? That's life's greatest question. When we understand God's holiness and our sin, we understand we have no claim, we can make no demands, but those who want to say, well, it's not fair unless everyone is saved, presume upon the grace of God. They assume that we're really not that bad after all. Sin isn't really that bad of a thing. Two more things and then we'll move to pluralism. Point F, it undermines the preaching of Christ and the apostles. And again, this argument will not work against some universalists because some universalists don't even claim to uh, argue from the Bible. The the secular universalists are just when someone dies, they go to heaven. You know, when Frank Sinatra died, I I heard one person say, yeah, old Blue Eyes is just up there leading heaven's choir. You know, they're not arguing from Scripture. It's just an argument from experience that everyone's going to be saved. But if someone wants to argue from Scripture, a universalist is presented with a dilemma. And that is the preaching of Jesus and the apostles. Because Jesus and the apostles warned people to flee from the wrath to come. They warned people that there was judgment in hell and they needed to escape that. Now, here's the question. Did they know what they were talking about or did they not? If we argue that Jesus and the apostles were mistaken, they really didn't know what they were talking about about hell, which is what universalists would argue, then how do we know we can trust them on heaven? If they got hell wrong, how do we know they got heaven right? Or uh, a second option that some universalists have claimed is, well, they knew that this wasn't real. They were just trying to scare people into living right now. Well, what does Paul say to that kind of ethic in Romans chapter 6? What then? Should we do evil so that good may come? May it never be. Universalist has a hard time explaining the preaching of Christ and the apostles. Either they were incompetent or they were immoral, neither one of which is a good conclusion. And then finally, I've already mentioned it undercuts the motivation for evangelism and missions. If ultimately everyone's going to be in heaven, whether or not they ever hear the gospel, why would we ever sacrifice anything for them to hear the gospel? Why would we even lift a finger? Well, a lot of universalists have come to that conclusion and said, we shouldn't. And so churches and groups that have adopted universalism basically have pulled their missionaries home. They're not sending them out anymore. Why bother? Uh, If universalism is true, then missions is a farce because everyone's going to be saved ultimately anyway. Well, that's the position of universalism. Let me next talk about pluralism. If you have questions, I'm going to leave a few minutes at the end and we'll take all the questions together. Pluralism, as I noted, is different from universalism. While most universalists are pluralists, not all pluralists are universalists. Pluralism doesn't say everyone's going to be saved. It just says there are many paths to God. Jesus may be a way, but he is not the only way. And pluralism really is the dominant viewpoint in American culture. It's it's the dominant viewpoint on our college campuses. Well, Christianity may be a way, but Buddhism is a way, and Islam's a way, and atheism's a way. You've got all these different ways. All of them just lead to the same God. A proponent of Uh, pluralism is a man by the name of John Hick, and and let me show you how he argues for this and and the position that he takes. John Hick argues that we need a Copernican revolution. Now, if you've ever studied the history of astronomy, you know that in astronomy, the old viewpoint, the old world view up until the, the late Middle Ages was the view of Ptolemy, which said the earth was at the center of the universe. That, that's what all astronomers believed until up until the late Middle Ages. A man by the name of Nicholas Copernicus comes along, and he says, no, no, they, they've had it all wrong. The earth is not at the center of the universe, the sun is. How was Copernicus received by people in his day? Was he hailed as a hero? guy who finally figured it out? How was he received? Not well. He was condemned as a heretic. How dare you suggest that the earth is not at the center of the universe? He, he had all of his uh, uh, astronomical tables and showing them and calculus and all this, but they didn't believe him. No, you're wrong. We know the earth is at the center of the universe. Well, today, everyone understands Copernicus is right. Even people who believe the earth is flat at least argue the sun's at the center of the universe. No one believes the earth's at the center of the universe anymore. What Hicks says... We need that same revolution in theology. What is the traditional Christian view? The traditional Christian view is that Christ is at the center of the universe. In order to get to heaven, you have to go through Christ. And Hick is right. That is the traditional Christian viewpoint. That's what basically was unchallenged for 1,800 years of church history. But Hick says now we need a viewpoint to understand... The person through which people must come to get to heaven is not Christ, it's God. And Christ is one of those paths to God, but not the only one. There are many paths to God. Now Hicks says, I know how people are going to respond. They're going to say I'm a heretic. They're going to condemn me just like they did Copernicus. But one day people are going to realize that this is true. That there is not just one way to God. There are many ways. There's not just one way to heaven. There are many ways, many different paths. Obviously, tied in with that point too, if there are many ways to God, one of those prominent ways are non-Christian religions. And John Hick argued that if someone is involved in Buddhism, you should not try and change them, not try and convert them to Christianity. You just help them become a better Buddhist. That's your goal. Uh, because there is salvation found in these other religions. I simply note as a matter of biblical critique that Acts 4.12, there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved, in John 14.6, where Jesus did not say, I am a way to God. He didn't even say, I happen to be the best way to God. He said, I am the only way. No one comes to the Father except by why do we believe in the position of Christian exclusivism? Because Jesus Christ Himself taught that. Not our idea, not something we came up with, which is what God has revealed to us. So pluralism simply saying there are many who are or there are many paths to God. Christianity may be a way, but it's not the way. And then let me quickly cover inclusivism. We'll open it up for questions. Inclusivism on the surface sounds right. All who are saved are saved by Christ. I agree with that in what it says. It's what inclusivists don't say or what they deny where the problem is. They deny this last part, what you see here in exclusivism. They deny that explicit faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. They believe anyone who is saved is going to be saved by Christ, but they go on to say you can be saved by Christ without ever having heard of Christ. You can be saved by Christ even if you deny Christ. Say, how exactly does that work? Well, let me explain the teachings. I've listed three teachings for you there, selected teachings of inclusivists under Roman numeral four point eight. First, First, inclusivists argue and believe, and this is what separates them from pluralism, Inclusivists say Jesus is the only Savior, the only hope for the world. Now, a pluralist would never say that. A a pluralist would say Jesus may be a way, but He's not the only way. An inclusivist says Jesus is the only way. There's only one way to God, and that's through Christ. But here's where the inclusivists become pluralistic. They say, but there are many paths to Christ. Explicit faith in Him is one path, but absolute ignorance of him and coming through another religion is another path. So how did they get there? Look at the second point. They make a distinction between Christ's work as an ontological necessity and as an epistemological necessity. And I know we're still recuperating from eating lunch. It's warm in this room. And you say, what in the world did that sentence just say? Well, ontology is the science of being, the the science of reality. By distinguishing between Christ's work as an ontological necessity, they're saying it had to have actually happened. Jesus had to die on a cross for people to be forgiven. The atonement had to be made. But epistemological necessity, epistemology, the, the science of knowing how it is that we know things, They say you don't have to know about it in order to receive the benefits of it. Christ's death is necessary, but you don't have to know about Christ's death in order to receive the benefits. They make this distinction. It's an unprecedented distinction in terms of Christian history, but this is the distinction they make. Well, then how is someone saved? If you can be saved apart from never even hearing the name of Jesus, from never knowing Him, how does God determine... Who ends up getting the benefits of Christ's death applied to them and who doesn't? That brings us to the third point, what inclusivists call the faith principle. And and they use the word faith principle because faith is a good biblical word. I, I think more accurately, and I'm trying to be fair to their position here, I think it could be more accurately described as the sincerity principle. Because it really is captured in the phrase, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. According to inclusivism, it is all about the subjective aspect of your faith. As long as you sincerely hold and believe something, God is going to take that sincere faith that you have in whatever and apply it to faith in Christ. Now, if you are insincere, you're in trouble. But as long as you have faith in something, you're sincere. In fact... Some inclusivists argue you can be a sincere atheist and be saved by Christ. If you're an insincere atheist, you're in trouble. But as long as you're sincere, sincerity becomes the new gospel. But what they fail to realize and recognize, when the Bible talks about faith, it doesn't refer to it just in the subjective part of faith, but also the objective part. In other words, we don't just have strong faith, we have faith in in an object there's not only the subjective part of faith the sincerity there's also the objective part for example if i go out here to a frozen pond out here in louisville a pond that has ice over it i might have very strong subjective faith i I may say i believe that ice is thick enough to hold me up in fact i have such strong sincerity and and commitment to that i'm not going to wear a life jacket I'm not going to have a rope tied around my waist when I walk across this lake. I'm confident that ice is thick enough to hold me up. Can you question the sincerity of my faith? No. I'm demonstrating it by my actions. I really believe this ice is thick enough. What happens if I go out there and the ice isn't thick enough? I drown. Now, according to inclusivism, I shouldn't drown because I'm sincere. I was so sincere, I didn't take any precautions. I was sure the ice would hold me up. You see, that illustration reminds us that faith not only has a subjective component, but an objective. I can sincerely think I'm taking medicine that's going to help me get better. But if I am drinking poison, that sincerity isn't going to help me. I'm going to be sincerely dead. Because the objective reality is going to overtake the subjective component. Inclusivists put all their eggs in the subjective basket. And just one example of this, a passage that absolutely refutes this position, is Romans chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, uh, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Well, who's he talking about? Who's he saying, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation? He tells us in Romans 10, verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. They were not only sincere, they were zealous, and yet Paul says they're zealously wrong, and therefore they're lost, and therefore they need Christ. Inclusivism doesn't stack up according to the teaching of Scripture. Well, let me give you a few words of conclusion then, and, uh, and then I'll open it up for questions. The first word of conclusion that, that I give and that I note is that It is Jesus who gives us our doctrine of eternal punishment. And that's really important for us because you may at some point encounter someone as I have who will say, how can you believe in a God of love and believe that anyone goes to hell? Don't tell me you believe in the love of God if you believe anyone goes to hell. Okay, let's just back up for a second. How do we know that God is love? Do we know that from general revelation? Do we know that from creation? Does creation tell us that God is love? No. Tells us God's powerful. Tells us God's very creative. But it doesn't tell us He's love. How do we know that God is love? Scripture and supremely how? In Christ. In the person of Christ. And yet Jesus over and over again talked about hell. Don't ever let someone tell you if you believe in hell, you don't understand the love of God. Jesus Christ understands the love of God more than I'm convinced you and I ever will. I do think we'll learn and grow in heaven. Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. I, I think we'll grow in our understanding. A lot of the questions we have now will be answered. But I still don't think we will ever fully comprehend the height and breadth and depth and width of the love of God. But Jesus knows that. He knows God's love in a way that I'm not sure we ever will. And yet over and over again, he said hell is real. And that's where the unrighteous go. So we get our doctrine of eternal punishment from Jesus. It's not a doctrine held by people who don't understand the love of God. It's a doctrine that was taught to us by someone who understands the love of God better than we ever will. Second, No one will ever be able to say to God that he was unjust in his dealings with him. Look at these last two verses. In the very opening book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Abraham asks a question, Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. This is what's known as a rhetorical question. You already know the answer when you ask it. It's like me asking my wife, would you like to go out for dinner? I already know the answer to that. It's just a formality. Genesis 18, 25. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? The answer to that is obvious. God, if you're really who you claim to be, you're the righteous judge. Will you not judge justly? The answer is obvious. Of course he will. Look at how that question is answered in the book of Revelation. One of these scenes around the throne is God passes judgment on the world. Part of the praise that is ascribed to God in heaven. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. No one is ever going to be able to say when God passes judgment upon them. Wait a minute, time out. That's not fair. I appeal to a higher authority. I disagree. I don't think you've been fair with me. I think this diagram summarizes it well. This is taken from one of R.C. Sproul's books. R.C. Sproul says, too often we have the wrong starting point when people talk about something's not fair. We assume that we're owed something, and therefore, if we don't get it, well, it's not fair. But Sproul says, let's look at it in this way. What is it that every single human being who has ever lived deserves from God? And the answer is justice. God would be perfectly just, perfectly righteous, if everyone went to hell. That's what we deserve. That would be perfect justice if no one were saved. All of us deserve justice. What do some of us receive? Mercy. Here's the key question. If someone receives mercy, what about those who don't receive mercy? Does that mean they receive injustice? No. Injustice is outside the pale of how God works with human beings. All of us either receive justice, what we deserve, or mercy, what we don't deserve. None of us are ever treated with injustice. Our starting point is very important here. If we assume that unless everyone is treated equally, it's unfair, well, then that is unjust because not everyone's treated equally. But if we assume that all of us are undeserving of anything good from God, the fact that some of us receive that ought to make us grateful and humble, uh, not, not arrogant and not proud. But it doesn't mean that those who don't receive mercy are being treated unjustly. We've got about five minutes left. We went through the isms in a hurry there. Do you have questions about any of these uh, isms, the, uh, the basic roadmap that, that we've talked about here? Universalism, pluralism, inclusivism, or exclusivism? This is just a summary overview, but hopefully gives you a picture. When someone uses one of these terms, you'll be able to put it in context now.